Welcome to the Maluli Asset Management Podcast. This is episode number 272. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, I'm Tom Maluli. Joining me this week is Tim Maluli. Hello, everybody. We've got a bunch of different articles that we wanted to bring to our listeners' attention. I think the one that, that rose to the top of the pile is uh, the news surrounding Andrew Luck, quarterback from the Indianapolis Colts. Former now quarterback. Former, yeah. Suddenly announced that he's retiring at age 29. We wanted to start off with this one because I'm sure everyone listening has heard the news by now that Andrew Luck has retired. Uh, there was an article in Forbes talking about how Andrew Luck's retirement shows what happens when you don't fix an employee's demotivators. They said in the article, while people that don't play in the NFL, which is pretty much everyone out there, won't know the physical pain that he was going through having all of these different injuries, a lot of us do know some of the psychological and emotional pain that sometimes jobs or or careers or places that you work at can bring with it. During his press conference, he said a handful of times that the injuries and the rehabbing kind of just took the joy out of playing the game. And I feel like a lot of people might be able to relate to that. You know, you join a field with a lot of passion and you have a new job and then things happen along the way and you just lose the joy that was there from doing that job that you had back when you started. It's a real problem, and it, and it really does exist. I thought this was actually a very good article Mark Murphy published in Forbes. He gave a good example of someone who's, uh, say they're a top salesperson, and they uh, come to work for your firm, but you paired them up with an assistant who is just awful yeah. at their job. How long is it going to take a CEO or supervisor to realize, wow, this is really holding this top performer back. Let's get rid of this other person, this assistant, and pair them up with someone who can really shine. Yeah. They said, uh, which I found shocking, that 42% of organizations out there, the low performers were more engaged than the mid to high performers. They said, meaning your best employees can be suffering more emotional or psychological pain at their job on a day-to-day basis than than your worst employees. And that's that's risky for the business. I saw it in Living Color when I worked on the brokerage side years ago. Uh, if you were not a big producer, they would basically say, okay, that guy in the corner office, he's got his own sales assistant, but Everyone else out here in the bullpen, like all 11 of you advisors or brokers, you're going to work with this person who has trouble walking and chewing gum. Right. And basically, you had no help. Yeah. And you had to figure it out. And then every once in a while, a salesperson would kind of climb out of the out of the mud and they would get a deal to go across the street to another firm. <clears throat> They'd get a little more help, not a lot a little more help, and all of a sudden, they're a superstar. Yeah, I think it's important to just remember that while someone might be performing really well at their job, if the the culture or the incentive system or the whatever's going on during the office, uh, that affects their job performance as well. Like They might be one of your highest earners bringing in a lot of new clients and big bucks for for the firm, but if they're not actually happy with what they're doing, they're a flight risk, you know, they can just up and leave. It doesn't say a lot to the uh, building company loyalty. It might not be sustainable. Okay, since we're talking about Andrew Luck, trivia question, 
Who did he replace as quarterback of the Indianapolis Colts? Peyton Manning. Yeah. Right. Okay. So Andrew Luck's dad played in the NFL. Did you know that? Uh, I did. His name was Oliver Luck. Yeah. So who replaced Oliver Luck as quarterback? I'm going to guess Archie Manning. Correct. Yeah. Archie Manning. Tom Maluli is an investment advisor representative with Maluli Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Tom and his podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Maluli Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Maluli Asset Management may maintain positions in securities discussed in this podcast. We found this story that we thought we'd share. We don't want to get into a lot of details of this, but it was in um, Markets Insider, which I think is like a subcategory of Business Insider. But they talked about something going on in Australian markets. Yeah, uh, the headline is, is crazy. It says... Dating apps have become hotbed for scammers trying to trick investors into making risky trades. <laughs> uh, this is this is a real this story. Is, yeah. So this is going on in Australia, uh, not in America, but women apparently are being paid to lure male investors on dating apps. So they engage with them as if you know they were going to go out on a date or something like that. Uh, and then they're actually hey, what do you being know about, paid. Yeah, what do you know about frozen concentrated orange juice yeah, features or yeah. something? You know, they're getting paid to uh, get them to invest money, uh, I guess, on those dates or like over the app uh, in like risky leveraged trades. Uh, I think they call them contracts for difference. It's like options and all these different leveraged crazy things. So these are products that are leveraged like. 200 times to yeah. one, or in some cases, 500 times to one, where basically you put up a couple of bucks yeah. and the potential is there to make, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars. But the reality is these are just scams. Yeah. I mean, you hear about scams on dating apps with like the, the people aren't who they say they are, but I honestly never even thought that something like this would ever be a thing, you know, investing scams on dating apps, like, whole, and oh you my know, gosh. When you see these stories, you think that, oh, this probably happened just once or twice, but it turns out that the Australian Financial Review reported that brokers are spending more than $280 million a year on commissions for these women that they call introducers. Wow. Wow is right. They're in, they're including women on messaging services and dating apps to reach out to traders. So they'll get large commissions if they're able to convince traders to invest in these contracts. It'd be interesting to see if something like this were to happen in the US, because I'm not sure what the Australian laws are. But in terms of, you know, would these women be considered advisors or brokers or some kind of representatives in, you know, like soliciting business, giving out recommendations for securities and they're being paid for it. So wouldn't that qualify them at they have to register <laughs> as an investment advisor or a broker? Uh, I wonder if they're even real people. It makes you wonder yeah. uh, because it, it, it also said this Australian, uh, basically the equivalent of the SEC in Australia said that investors have lost in the past year close to $2 billion in these speculative contracts. File that under the yikes category. Yeah, really. For headlines. So I think uh, Josh Brown wrote a really good article 
this morning or yesterday uh, that, that we wanted to talk about uh, in terms of bubbles and active versus passive investing. Okay, so he started out by referencing an article uh, that came out yesterday where Michael Burry was quoted. Now, Michael Burry was uh, and and is a, a pretty savvy investor trader. Yeah. He was actually one of the featured characters on The Big Short. Right. Now, who played him? Was it the guy from The Office? I Steve think it, Carell? I think it was. I think it was. The reason why he... he brought this up was because Michael Burry was quoted yesterday in a different article saying that passive investing has become a bubble. When I saw that headline yesterday, because I actually saw the headline and then I read Josh's article earlier today, uh, I saw the, the headline yesterday and I was like, that can't be right. There was actually an eruption of uh, discussions on Twitter last night yeah. about this. But incidentally, if you're not following Tim Malouli on Twitter, get with it. Yeah. Because uh, he's plugged into everything, including the Mets. Appreciate the shout out. <clears throat> when I saw that headline, I was like, okay, first of all, Michael Burry's smart guy. Yeah. Okay. To say that passive investing is a bubble, my interpretation was, you mean people buying index ETFs? You know, ETFs that... that follow an index, that's passive investing, right? right? I mean, I just, how could that be a bubble? I don't understand. But he actually went on to explain that what he considers passive investing was really small cap value. Right. So think about small caps. They're small cap for a reason. They fit into the a very, uh, a much lower valuation than, IBM and Apple. Apple and Oracle and all right. these big companies. Okay, so it's small cap. And then value is where people will say, hey, this is a value stock because the assets are worth more than the value of the company is trading at. Reading the original article, it, it basically went on to explain that a lot of small cap value names are just getting thrown out in the trash right now because... Uh, hedge funds are just dumping these things without any kind of consideration to what they're actually worth. They're just doing this to raise money so they can invest somewhere else. But Josh actually kind of took that idea of the bubble and turned it around. And he talked about the bubble has always been in active management. So we spend a lot of time talking about passive versus yeah. active. When Josh said that using the term bubble for passive investing it's just the wrong terminology and it's the wrong way to think about it because when you think of a bubble, a bubble in investing is something that's about very to, about to pop. It's very speculative and it's getting like ridiculous amounts of enthusiasm and it's unsustainable. And that's like the opposite of what you think people buying low cost, cheap ETFs, broadly diversified funds. Uh, so I think it's just the wrong terminology of calling it a bubble. Uh, but he talked about how the active bubble really started back in the 80s with these actively traded mutual funds. And it pretty much ran all the way up through the tech bubble in the early 2000s and then through the great financial crisis in 2007, 2008. Right. So really what we've been seeing from the recovery after the great financial crisis till now and the trend towards low-cost indexed ETFs is 
more of just reverting back to normal. And the, the bubble was more active management of what happened the previous 20, 25 years. Sure. You probably remember all of these ridiculous online brokerage firms with their crazy commercials. Yeah. You know, there was an E-Trade one, and he referenced it in his post about the, a truck driver who could buy his own island because he was day trading his account. Right. Yeah, things just got out of whack there for a long time. And up until the great financial credit, up until 2007, 2008, that's kind of when people kind of just threw their hands up. They had had enough after the tech bubble. And then after 2007, 2008, they were like, all right, we're done with this. Just give me the average, you know, just give me plain vanilla, give me the average. And that's the way the trend has been going for the last decade. You know, the amazing thing is that um, we still have folks that come in here for fit meetings at our firm, and they still want to talk about performance and how we're going to do versus markets. I, I'm a little surprised that there's still some people out there who are trying to be performance chasers and think they can catch lightning in a bottle. I, I think it would be um, a better use of everyone's time if they understood how keeping up with the averages is probably the best thing that you can do. I don't necessarily blame a lot of the individuals that come in here because a lot of people, they might have maybe worked with one other advisor or one other broker early on in their career. That might have been their only experience and that, or they have no experience and that's just what they heard over their lifetime growing up. So they don't know the change that has been going on in the industry over the last decade. So I think that it's important when they come in and they have those preconceived notions of you know performance and stock picking and picking the you know hot tips it's important for us and other advisors to say hey the game has kind of changed a little bit like here's how we're doing things now and and this is why we think it's a better approach very good article from Christine Benz on as usual uh, on the Morningstar website Christine um, friend of the firm yeah. was featured in a uh, Living with Money podcast episode not right. that long ago. Uh, Who was on first? It Jeff Patak or Christine Benz? Christine was on first. It doesn't feel like it was that long ago, but I think it might be bumping up on a year. Uh, but the article that she wrote recently was uh, titled A Down Market Survival Guide for Pre-Retirees. And this is for people that are worried that this bull market that we're in is eventually going to end. And if it ends right as I'm getting ready for retirement, what do I do? Very timely because we get this question a lot. It's yeah, it's usually in like the top three questions that people within five or six years of retirement are asking, like what happens if the market goes down? And so Christine wrote this article with the idea that, hey, if you're within 10 years of retirement, right? Here's a few steps you ought to keep in mind, or, or a few pointers you might you might want to keep in mind. The first one she said was see where you stand. We meant we talked about this on the Living with Money podcast for this week. She was like, as much as it might hurt, you know, if if the market gyrations are making you uncomfortable, you need to log in and look. Right. Even if it's down, you know, you you got to know where you stand. You got to know what the numbers are, uh, and I totally agree. So step uh, step two, she said, you need to turbocharge your savings. And I'll admit that my wife and I are in that 
scenario now. Yeah. Uh, the kids are out of school. They've all moved out. And so it's, okay, let's step on the gas for the next 10, 12, whoever knows long, you know, this is going yeah. to be. But this is really when we should be stepping on the gas in terms of increasing our savings, not only in retirement plans. I mean, you have some thresholds, but if you have the ability to go above and beyond that, you really should be socking money away. Now's the time to do it. It's an important point to remind people, you know, you, in terms of the market and your financial plan, you control what you can control. Uh, you can control your savings rate. You can't control what the market does. Right. So if you're worried about something, you might as well worry about and do something about what you can actually control. Well, speaking of taking control. Yeah, the third point uh, was take control of your retirement date. And she said that is sometimes out of people's control. Downsizing, if there's a recession, that's also probably going to raise the unemployment rate back up from the low points where it's at now. But she said you know, a couple ways that you can personally try and take control of when you want to retire is uh, living a healthy lifestyle. You don't want to get sick and have medical expenses that deplete your retirement savings. And I'll, I'll add that we've had a couple of situations where clients have told us over the years, years gone by, that I'm definitely retiring at 62 or 65 or fill in the blank. And then a few years before that, they get sick. Right. And they don't even make their retirement date. Yeah. And so to our listeners out there, you really need to think this through. Yeah. Sometimes, I mean, the, the sicknesses might be out of your control, but again, controlling what you eat and how much you exercise and also perhaps think about continuing education and keeping up with technology. So at your job, you become more valuable to the company and you don't fall behind. Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, the fourth point that she brought up, uh, she said, revisit the, in quotes, safe portion of your portfolio. You always need to reassess, especially as you're closing in towards retirement. You know, you, you might need to increase the safe amount in your portfolio. Or, or maybe you're being maybe you're you're being a little too conservative. Right. Yeah. And if you you know, if you do some projections and you realize your investments aren't going to give off as much as you think and you have a little bit of time to let the account grow, you might wanna maybe pull the reins back. Which kind of which kind of spills over into step five, which is assess your equity positioning. How much of your investments are really invested in the market and and subject to risk? Right. That's really important to know yeah. what your allocation looks like. Uh, and then step six, factor in you know what kind of sequence of withdrawals you want to take, and what do you want to do with social security? You know that's a these are all huge, huge factors in determining your cash flow. Yeah, especially with Social Security, there's a bunch of different scenarios and different numbers to crunch in terms of if, if I wait to 62 or if I wait till 65 or if I wait till 70. The seventh point that she brought up was evaluate anticipated lifestyle changes, meaning when you retire, uh, are you going to move? Are you going to relocate? Right. What are you going to do? Are you yeah. going to downsize? How much money are you planning on spending? Do you want to travel? Lifestyle changes, all of that kind of thing it needs to be evaluated and reevaluated on a constant basis. It, and the constant basis part is, I think, the thing that a lot of people overlook. You know, one of the phrases you've heard me use a lot with clients is Semper Gumby. Mm -hmm. 
always flexible. Right. And <laughs> you just have to be ready to change your plans if the situation calls for it. Yep. So people get sick. Things happen. You want to really be up to speed on what's going on with all of this stuff and not be locked in. Yeah. And the final point that she brought up, step eight, assess your insurance safety net. Again, like a lot of the other points in here too, insurance and and what you have there, it's important to always make sure that it's appropriate if you need more, if you need less, just a good time. In general, as you're starting to close in towards retirement to just kind of uh, see if everything is where it needs to be. Okay, so there was a an article in uh, Bloomberg today about the idea of 100-year treasuries, yeah, 100-year maturity treasury bonds. Yeah. So you can buy T-bills, they come due within two years or less, uh, treasury notes come due five years or less. Everything beyond five years is considered a treasury bond, right. 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. There was a time in the 1990s when the Clinton administration actually stopped issuing 20-year treasury bonds. Yeah. Uh, and the idea was they wanted to reduce the debt and the deficit, so that's where they they stopped issuing 20-year. But now they're talking about since rates are so low, maybe issuing 100-year treasuries. Right. They said with the 30-year now under 2%, this might be there's they said there's no no better time to do it than now than to issue 100-year bonds. Issuing 100-year bonds, it would re-steepen the yield curve. And obviously now you've heard portions of the yield curve are inverted or were inverted. Uh, so this would re-steepen the yield curve, adding 100-year bonds in there. Isn't that just moving the goalposts? Just like, oh, we'll just add 100-year bonds in there, and that'll re-steepen it, and that'll that'll get rid of all the recession fears? Like, the economic data is still the same. It's just adding another bond in there to just fix the yield curve real quick. It's like, it's it's manipulating... The yield curve, you know, like, so it's not inverted. I understand what you're saying, but moving the goalposts has been happening since the days of Alexander Hamilton. Right. So, but, I mean, it would it would make people feel better because it's like, okay, whew, okay. the yield curve is, isn't inverted anymore, but all of the same data that would be pointing towards a recession could still be coming anyway. It's just like, all right, well, the yield curve's not inverted now, so I'm... I'm not worrying about it anymore. It well, would just they, make us feel better. When they, You raise a good point because when they talk about an inverted yield curve, they're actually measuring the two-year yield versus the 10-year yield. So the 30-year yield is still going to be higher, hopefully. Right. And the 100-year, if they ever issue it, would be higher still. I think they should take a baby step and do a 50-year and do that. Um, but... Yeah, it does raise a, an interesting question about uh, manipulating the yield curve. There's something else out there that nobody, nobody is talking about in all of this discussion about the economy and the inverted yield curve and all this stuff. I'm going to call it Oliver Twist, but mm -hmm. it was Operation Twist in 2011. I haven't seen until this article today. This was August 29th. 2019. This is the first time I've seen an, anything in print talk about the yield curve and operation twist. 
And so what they what Bernanke did in 2011 was he said, hey, look, here's what we're going to do as uh, we have all of these short term bills that we bought in the open market uh, as they come due instead of taking that money and buying more, taking more short term bills off the market, we're actually going to buy long term bonds. And so they drain the market of supply of 30 year bonds by doing that. And so that helped flatten the yield curve eight years ago. Nobody is talking about that. Yeah. It's uh, interesting that no one's talking about that. And it's also just my thought process is like, would would adding this 100 year bond, like, would that really stop any impending recession? Or would it just make you feel better until until it gets here? I don't think it would stop. <laughs> I don't think it would stop a recession at all. Right. And we've had recessions without inverted yield curves. I think yeah. that's the other part that that I mean, people are just losing their minds right. over this inverted yield curve, because we've had yield curve inversions several times over the years, not followed by recession. Right. So everybody's just got to take a chill pill. I think just in general, people need to just relax about the yield curve. But that's the end of my take on that. And that's also <laughs> the end of episode 272. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch up with you next on the next one.